We are going to turn to God's Word now. We have uh, four readings. Uh, we're, our main reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. Uh, we're just going to read a small section again. One of the interesting things about Isaiah 36 and 37 is it's actually a narrative passage. Um, so as most of the book of Isaiah, as we've seen, is all prophecy. It's Isaiah using poetic language to declare the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we have a story that we're looking at, the story of Assyria coming up to the walls of Jerusalem, beginning to lay siege to Jerusalem, and then seeing how the people respond and how the Lord himself responds. So we're going to see how King Hezekiah responds when we read Isaiah 37, 14 to 22. Joshua's going to read that for us. And then Tom will come up and read for us from Isaiah 37, 36 to 8. Then we have a couple other texts that we want to read about prayer in particular, and so Sherry's going to come and read for us from James 5, 16 to 18, and Moira will come and read for us from James or from Psalm 86, verses 1 to 7, to see what else Scripture tells us about the power of prayer in the midst of desperate situations. Let me pray now briefly, just for God to work on us through his word. Heavenly Father, would you now speak to us through your word as your word is read and as I proclaim your word? God, we want your spirit to move alongside your word. And so, Lord, send your spirit now to build up faith in our hearts, to give me power in my proclamation, Lord, so that we as your people can be changed, can be shaped, as the song we just sang said, into your likeness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of the Sennacherib, which he hath sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, Save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Isaiah 37, verses 36 through 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. 
It came about as he was worshipping in the house of Nerosh, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Asheridan, his son, became king in his place. James five sixteen through 18 Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Psalm 86, verses 1 to 7, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. As we encounter the people of Judah and King Hezekiah this morning, we encounter them in a moment of grave desperation. And so I think as we look at this text this morning, the first question that the Lord would have us ask about it is, where would we ourselves turn in a moment of great desperation? Where is our ultimate hope when everything seems lost, when nothing seems to be going as it should? Where will we turn? Again, this is the position that King Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem in particular find themselves this morning. This question, the way that the passage answers this question for us this morning is by showing us a God who can accomplish anything that he wants. A God who is indeed powerful over all of creation. Who is powerful over the strongest armies whom no one can defy. And so the answer that the text gives for us this morning that I'm sure you expected coming to church and all is that the one whom we should turn to in our moments of greatest desperation is God himself. And so the way that the text this morning reinforces for us this notion that we should turn to God in our moments of desperation is by giving us a true story of God's deliverance. When we see this story, when we see what God accomplishes in these chapters of Isaiah, it should cause our hearts to say, Lord, I will trust in you in every moment. The story of deliverance that we encounter here is one of the greatest stories of deliverance in the Bible. Even though it's only two short chapters, it compares right up there with the Exodus coming out from Egypt and the many other military victories that God gave to his people. It is an enormous salvation that God provides for his people here in Isaiah. Now I'll get to describing the scale of this deliverance soon, But for all the magnitude of this deliverance, what is really most remarkable in my mind about this salvation that God accomplishes 
is that this great deliverance was all done in response to a simple and sincere prayer. When Hezekiah went to the Lord and prayed a prayer to him of four short sentences, God answered that prayer and the people were saved. And so this morning's sermon is really just a plea to you, a cry for you to turn to God in prayer. And when I say turn to God in prayer, this is really just another way of saying to turn to God in faith or turn to God in trust. Prayer at the end of the day is simply the most straightforward display of our trust in God. If you do not trust God, then you will not pray. Conversely, if you do trust God, then you will pray. And so, as we think about this matter of trusting God in prayer, I also want you to ask yourself if you trust God. And the best way to answer this question in my mind is to answer the question of, do I pray? If you pray, this is a wonderful sign of trust in God. And if you do not pray, that is a very clear sign that you think that God makes very little difference. Just consider one short analogy, and then we'll move to our text this morning. If you're working in a bank and there's a bank robbery, who do you call or what do you do in that moment of a bank robbery? Well, probably you call the police. And the reason why you call the police is because you know that in the event of a bank robbery, the police will respond and they will come and they will rescue you. They will arrest whoever is at fault and they will resolve the situation. The police are who you want to call if you are in the midst of a bank robbery. The reason why you call them is because you believe they will respond. If you lived in a country where the police were very corrupt or where they were very weak, you probably wouldn't call because you would think, well, the police are just going to make matters worse. But in our country, we call the police because we do believe that the police can resolve the situation. In other words, you call the police because you know they will answer. You call the police because you trust them. You call the person that you trust. Another term for prayer in the Bible is simply calling on the Lord. We heard that phrase in Psalm 86, which we just read. We call on who we trust. Psalm 86 verse 7 says, In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. I call upon you, for you answer me. That is why we pray. That is why we call upon the Lord, because he answers. Now, I'm not trying to say in this analogy that if you're in trouble at a bank, you should simply pray and not call the police. You should do both. You should call the police and you should pray. You don't have to choose between the two. I do think it would be wrong to only call the police and not pray, just like it would probably be wrong also to only pray and to not call the police if you could. But the question of prayer, the question of trust, is this question of will we call on God when we are in trouble? The point is just to illustrate this principle that we call on who we trust. And if we do not call on someone, then the only reasonable inference is that we don't trust them. We don't think it's going to do anything. We don't think it's going to make any difference. So why do it? 
we call on who we trust. Now, up to this point in Isaiah, the story has been the story of a people who emphatically do not trust God. The first five chapters of Isaiah, we had indictment after indictment of a people who do not trust the Lord. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is called to his ministry, he is specifically told that his words will harden the hearts of Judah, that they will not trust in God. And then all of chapters 7 to 35 have revolved around Isaiah's confrontation with King Ahaz, where Isaiah told King Ahaz to trust in the Lord. He said, ask any sign you want, King Ahaz, and the Lord will show you that he will deliver you. And Ahaz just says, no thanks, I don't need the Lord's help. And so all of chapters 9 through 35 are like a response to King Ahaz, where Isaiah is given prophecy after prophecy, saying, the Lord controls all the earth. That if there's anything in all creation, anything in all of existence that you should trust, it is the Lord. Isaiah's ministry is largely the ministry of someone who is sent to persuade people to trust in the Lord who do not trust in the Lord. And so, all thus far in the book of Isaiah, we've only seen examples of non-trust in God, non-belief that God is overall, non-belief that God can make a difference in our lives or in the world around us. All of these chapters have been Isaiah basically telling King Ahaz that he was foolish, that he was stupid to not trust in the Lord because the Lord indeed has everything in his hands. Well, King Ahaz has died and now King Hezekiah reigns in his place. Isaiah has not yet confronted King Hezekiah in any way, although certainly Isaiah's prophecies have been circulating around the royal court. Isaiah is a very famous person in Judah, so certainly Hezekiah knows about him and knows something of Isaiah's message. And so what will Hezekiah do now that he is faced with this conundrum of whether or not to trust the Lord in the face of great difficulties? Will Hezekiah also reject the Lord's help as Ahaz did? Will he seek help from nations around him, trying to pay them lots of money so that they will come and save him? Or will Hezekiah trust in the Lord? Again, another way of asking the same question is, will he pray or will he not pray? What will Hezekiah do? Well, Hezekiah doesn't get much of an opportunity to really think about his answer. He has to make a decision. When he ascends to the throne, Judah is already in trouble. When he has been reigning only four years, Assyria comes down and they lay siege against Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel, which is Judah's neighbor to the north. And the Assyrians besiege the city of Samaria for three years before the city of Samaria finally falls. It's a long time for King Hezekiah to have the Assyrian army right on his doorstep to the north, just a day's march away from his own capital. And then, when Hezekiah has been reigning for 14 years, we read in Isaiah 36, he gets the same treatment that Samaria gets. The 14th year of his reign, an army of Assyrians march up against Jerusalem. Now, how many men came up against Jerusalem? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But at the end of the story, we do learn that it was at least 
185,000 men. That is a massive army to come and lay siege upon your city. And in a siege, if you don't know anything about ancient warfare, what is actually to be feared in a siege even more than the army is the conditions that exist inside the city. As I just mentioned, the siege of Samaria lasted for three years. We learn that in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19, if you want to read about the reign of King Hezekiah there. So the siege lasted for three years, and one of the strategies that attackers used in those days in order to end the siege and get victory as quickly as possible is to deny food and water and any other kind of outside help to the city that they are besieging. Most often, a siege would end not when the city has been had its walls torn down or when it's been taken over militarily, but when the people inside are so thirsty and are so starving that they simply cannot handle the siege anymore. The fact that people are dying of hunger and thirst and there's all this psychological effects of starvation that are going on until the rulers of the city finally realize that they just cannot hold out any longer. And that is what finally gives the opposing army its victory. If you ever want to read a little more of what it would be like to be in a city that's under siege, I encourage you to read the book of Lamentations in the Bible. It's the story of Jeremiah as he was in Jerusalem in the siege that would eventually make the city fall. It is a horrifying and a terrible thing to read about. The things that were done in Jerusalem are unspeakable. And yet, when an army comes and lays siege to you and you find yourself with no food and no water, human beings will indeed turn to desperate things. And so, with that background in mind, now that you maybe understand a little bit of what's going on in Jerusalem, what Hezekiah might be thinking in this moment as he sees this army marching up and surrounding his city, I want to read some of the dialogue that Isaiah gives us between the Assyrians and Jerusalem. So this is Isaiah 36, starting in verse 4. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Now, Rabshakeh is just a word for an Assyrian official, uh, part of the military that would go and do negotiations like this. So the, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So in these words, you can hear the Rabshakeh's mocking tone. 
When he says, do you think mere words and strategies are power for war? And then the Rabshakeh goes on to explain why Jerusalem cannot trust either God himself or Egypt. He says you can't trust Egypt because Egypt is weak and you can't trust the Lord because he says Hezekiah has pursued policies that are contrary to the Lord and because the Lord has sent him there in order to destroy the city. Now, the Rabsakas claim that Hezekiah has pursued policies that the Lord would oppose is an interesting one and it's contradicted by 2 Kings, but we don't have time to get into that this morning. But nevertheless, you can see the strategy that the Rabshakeh is using. He's trying to destroy any sort of hope, any sort of outside resource that the people in Jerusalem would have. Now, what do the leaders of Jerusalem say in response? 36 verse 11. This is what the emissaries of Hezekiah say. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. And so in this reply, you can just hear the weakness of Jerusalem saying, please don't speak to us in this language. We don't want everybody else to hear what you're saying. Jerusalem is indeed in a weak point. And yet, even though they give this plea that they wouldn't speak in their own language, the Rabshakeh replies, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And of course, Hezekiah knew that this was no idle threat. This is exactly what would happen in a few short months if he did not capitulate to the king of Assyria. The Rabshakeh then continues in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each of each, of his, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, at this point, the Rabsakeh has clearly crossed a line. Not only is he mocking Egypt and saying that that Jerusalem is opposing the Lord, no, he has stepped over the line and he is mocking the Lord himself. He is saying that even the Lord cannot deliver you out of my hands. He names all these other gods, saying, These gods couldn't deliver out of my hand, so why should your God deliver out of my hand? And that's why, as Hezekiah's messengers go on to say in chapter 37, verse 4, the Rabshakeh is mocking the living God. So, what does Hezekiah do in response? 
Does he immediately capitulate as the Assyrians want him to do? Well, the first thing he does is he sends messengers to Isaiah. And what they do is they ask Isaiah to pray. This is the first time we see prayer spoken of in this passage. Hezekiah sends messengers to Isaiah saying, Isaiah, please pray for us. And they pass on the message of the Rabshakeh. Now, I think Hezekiah does the right thing here. He knows that Isaiah has access to God. Isaiah is a man who had entered the very throne room of God, as we saw in Isaiah 6. And God continues to speak to Isaiah, these words of prophecy. Now, we we do know that our own merits, our own good works, do not earn us favor before God. Nevertheless, it is a clear biblical truth that God does listen to some people more than he listens to others. And one reason why God might listen to one person more than another person is because of their righteousness. As James 5 says, which we also read, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And so Hezekiah, faced with these threats, is thinking, okay, who do I know who God will listen to? Who do I know who is righteous? Who could I ask to pray? And of course, he thinks first of Isaiah, saying, I should send to Isaiah, ask Isaiah to pray. And so Isaiah prays, and Isaiah then responds to Hezekiah, chapter 37, now in verse 5. Isaiah says, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men, the lackeys of the king of Assyria, have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. No doubt this was a hard word to believe. When you look out and you see an army of almost 200,000 around your walls, and in response, the word you get from Isaiah is, oh, I'm going to spread a rumor so that they'll go away. Hezekiah could understandably be a little skeptical about these words of Isaiah. But the next thing we hear is the Rabsakeh delivering more words to Jerusalem. This time, the Rabsakeh sends a letter directly to Hezekiah. He's responding to rumors that the king of Assyria might be distracted by other conflicts. And so in chapter 37, verse 10, this is what the Rabsakeh writes. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who are in Talasar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Ivah? And so you hear the Rabsekah listing off all these places that he has already destroyed. Just as in the prophecies of Isaiah that we've just been through, we saw God himself listing off the judgments of places that he would destroy. And so we have this direct confrontation now between this powerful nation of Assyria with an army of 200,000 and God and his word. And so the question is, What is the king of Judah 
going to do? Again, what would you do in a moment like this, in a moment of sheer desperation, where you face an excruciating death on the one hand and maybe a more lenient treatment if you just give up now and you don't make the army stay outside your gates for possible number of years? What would you do in this moment? Well, this is a picture of how sometimes God does have to bring us to moments of desperation like this in order to teach us to pray. It is a sad reality of human sinfulness that we don't, by nature, trust in the Lord and we would rather trust in everything besides the Lord. And it's very easy to trust in things besides the Lord when everything in our lives seems to be going well. It's easy to trust in money when you always have enough money. It's easy to trust in entertainment to distract you when you always have enough entertainment. It's easy to trust in your health when you're never sick. It's easy to trust in anything on the earth as long as that thing just seems consistent and never failing. And so... God sometimes must bring suffering into our lives. He must strip away things that we are trusting in precisely so that we will learn that these earthly things will not last. That we cannot place our ultimate hopes in them. That God truly is sovereign over those things in hopes that we will learn to trust in God and not in earthly things. It is often said that pleasure is a greater lure away from God than pain and persecution are. And I do think that's true. You can look around the world in so many places, you see that the persecuted church, the church with no resources, with no training, with none of the benefits that we have, is actually a more powerful and faithful church than we here in the West. And I think it's in large part simply because we have the good gift of pleasure through the money and the many things that we have here in the West, whereas they do not have those things to rely on. Now, sadly, these good things that we have are indeed good things, but they are a gift from the Lord. And so God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to lead us to trust him more, to believe in him more. And yet so often we allow these things to actually lead us away from the Lord. And so, so often it is actually God's kindness to strip away these things that we trust in. God isn't judging us in doing that. He's not hateful towards us. He's not against us trying to make us miserable or anything like that. He's simply trying to get our attention. He's simply trying to say, remember me. Remember that I am better, that I am more powerful. I am more everlasting than all of these earthly things that you could trust in. And so where in your life are things being stripped away? Is there anywhere in your life where suffering seems to be coming in some measure? God might just be calling you to trust in him in that area. To realize that that thing is not for your good. And that God himself is able to help you. So God is speaking to us in our suffering. God is speaking to Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem in their suffering. And again, what does Hezekiah do? Does he indeed give up? Well, if we go to Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 15, we see Hezekiah's response. It says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And this is what he said. 
O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah prays. He simply lays the words of the Rabsakah before God, telling God the threats that have come before him. And he trusts in the Lord. I think in Hezekiah's prayer is a great model for our own prayer. And there are three things in particular that I want Hezekiah's prayer to teach us about prayer. The first thing that I think we should see in Hezekiah's prayer is that prayer should come from sincere desire, from a feeling of sincere need. If you don't really think you need something, if you're not really in a condition to say, God, I must have your help, you are probably not going to be very effective in prayer. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the posture with which we must come to God in prayer. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. We must come to God saying, Lord, I really do need you. I really do need your help. And if I don't get it, I am lost. I have nowhere else to turn. Certainly, this was Hezekiah's posture in prayer. He saw the army outside. He knew he had no good options left. And so when he prayed, he prayed desperately, saying, Lord, I really am broken. I really don't have any other options, and I need your help. And so when we go to God in prayer, we should go to God with similar desperation, knowing that there really is not any help we have on this earth besides the Lord. Again, if God is just one of your many options, if he's just one good help among many, well, you can still pray, you can still ask him, but you're not likely to see him show up in real and significant ways. If, on the other hand, you will turn to the Lord, as your only hope, as your only option, that prayer packs power. The second thing we see in Hezekiah's prayer that would be good for us to learn is that prayer need not be many words. Prayers can be simple. Now, in a situation as desperate as Hezekiah, you might think, well, he's going to call the whole nation to fast and pray and they're going to fast for a week and they're going to do all that they can to get the Lord's attention and they're going to pray day and night and hoping that the Lord will hear them in some way. Now, of course, it's not wrong to fast. It's not wrong to spend long periods of time in prayer and yet the example given for us here in Isaiah is a very short and direct prayer. Again, it's four short verses. Hezekiah just goes to the Lord 
And he says, Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, and he lays his request before God. And God hears those simple words and he answers. Many times I wonder if you think you don't pray simply because you don't have time to pray or you think, well, I'm not in the right frame of mind to pray or my heart isn't right or something like that. Well, let Hezekiah's prayer be an example to you that it's okay to pray short prayers to God for things you know you need, just direct prayer saying, Lord, this is my need. And the Lord hears those prayers and he can answer. Jesus teaches us the same thing in Matthew 6, verse 7. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Again, I do hope we have seasons where we can spend prolonged times in prayer. But it's also good day in and day out just to offer short prayers to the Lord throughout the day, brief words of what you need, knowing that the Lord will hear. The last thing we learn from Hezekiah in his prayer is that prayers should seek God's glory. Prayers should seek God's glory. This is the whole substance of Hezekiah's prayer. Again, at the beginning of his prayer, he says that the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. He says, you are the God, you alone. And so he starts off by glorifying God. Saying, God, this is how great you are. And then when he comes to his request, in verse 17, when he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes and see. He says, Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So you can hear that Hezekiah's concern is not so much like, Lord, we're going to get really sick and we're in trouble here in the city. We're not safe. No, his concern is that the living God has been mocked. And then he goes on in verse 18, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods in the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hands that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are are the Lord. So he's setting up a competition of sorts between the Lord, the true God, and all these other gods that have been burned up in the fire by the Assyrians. And he is coming to God and he's saying, God, seek your own glory. Seek your own majesty. If you will deliver us from the Assyrians when no other nation on earth has possibly been delivered, then guess what? All the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone are Lord. His concern was for God's glory and was for all the nations of the earth to know God's glory. And it should be the same for every one of our prayers. Now it's good to pray for even the smallest, least request we may have, but we should always be asking the question and anything that we request of the Lord, am I asking this thing simply for my comfort, simply for my enjoyment? Or am I asking for it because I really do think that it will serve to advance the kingdom of God because I think it will serve the purpose of God's glory? I often make myself be in the habit of when I pray for someone's health, because we all know that's one very frequent prayer request. I'm not feeling good in this way or that way, and it's good to pray for our health. But I pray that people's health would be restored, not simply so that they could be comfortable and at ease and feel good again, 
but I pray that their health would be restored so that they can be of usefulness to King Jesus. So they won't be distracted anymore by this ailment that they have, but they will be able to be on mission for God in a more effective way. And so it's good to pray that people would be restored to full health, but we pray that for God's glory. We can pray that people would be able to purchase a house that they're trying to buy or any sort of problem that people may face, but in everything that we pray, we should be asking the Lord to use what we're praying toward the end of his glory, that that house would be used for God's glory or the resolution to whatever problem we're praying for would be to God's glory. That's the only way to pray effectively. I'm persuaded that one of the things that it means to pray in Jesus' name, one thing that it means to pray in Jesus' name is that we're coming to God by the blood of Jesus, but another thing that it means is that everything we're asking for is for Jesus' sake. It's for the sake of his name, for Jesus' name to go forward. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying that, Lord, I'm coming to you by the blood of Christ, but we're also saying, I'm asking for this because I want Jesus' name to be great. And so whenever we pray, when we pray in Jesus' name, our prayer must be in accordance with God's will, with his glory, with the glory of Jesus going out to the nations. And so all of our prayers should seek that glory. Now, how does God answer this prayer? Well, God does initially respond through Isaiah That's what we have in verses 22 to 29. I won't read those right now, but God asserts his authority once again as sovereign over all creation and as sovereign over Assyria itself and its massive army. And then Isaiah repeats his original promise when we come down to verses 33 to 35. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And so what happens? How does the Lord ultimately answer Hezekiah's prayer? Verses 36 to 38. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Exactly what the Lord had said is what happened. The Assyrians went back on the path from which they came. The king that had attacked Jerusalem was struck dead, and his son reigned in its place. In one night, while the people of Jerusalem are sleeping, the epitome of helplessness, the epitome of not being able to do anything on our own while the people are sleeping, the angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000. God sends one angel to accomplish what no other army on earth could possibly accomplish. 
Beloved, this is a call to us to trust in the Lord. (laughs) If God can deliver Jerusalem from an army of over 185,000, he can deliver you from whatever trouble you may be facing. You can trust in him. And yet, this story of deliverance here, of the city of Jerusalem being delivered from this massive army, we all know is not the greatest story of deliverance in the scriptures. There is another story that should inspire even more confidence in God, even more hope in him than this story of this army being destroyed. And that is the deliverance that God has worked through Jesus Christ. You see, all of us, every human being, is in the situation that these people in Jerusalem were in. There are enemies arrayed against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and in our own strength, we have no hope of deliverance. In fact, we ourselves are part of the problem. We are attacking ourselves in our foolishness and ignorance. So we had no hope whatsoever. And yet God sent a rescuer. He sent a deliverer. Jesus became for us like that angel of death came for Jerusalem. Jesus came and he wiped out our enemies. He conquered death itself. He defeated the devil. He overcame human sinfulness and he gives us a new power working within us by which we now can be saved and can live for God. And so, beloved, how much should we trust in the Lord if we have so great a salvation, if all of our enemies have been wiped away by the Lord Jesus himself. Who else should we trust in? Probably the greatest invitation to trust, the greatest invitation to prayer in all the Bible, in my mind, is Romans 8, verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, this is the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us, the victory that brings to us all things. And therefore, when we have this question of, well, what will I trust in in that hour of desperation? Or what should I pray to God about? Well, God has promised you all things. You should pray about all things. You should trust in God in all things because you have all things through Jesus Christ. This is the victory that has been won. And so, beloved, do not look to any other hope. Do not look to any other Savior. Do not look to anything else to ease your conscience, to distract you from the troubles of your life. No, you can face life head on with courage and with boldness, knowing that Jesus is at your side. And you can have that courage and boldness because you can pray to the living God. You can speak to him. And he will answer when you call. So with that spirit, beloved, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Let's offer prayers of intercession to him. Let's offer prayers of confession to him, knowing that he hears and knowing that he is able to work great change on our earth. I will open us in prayer now, and then I open it to you. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for this incredible salvation that we have seen you work for the people of Jerusalem. Lord, the way that you wiped out this Assyrian army, sent them back on their own way, and killed their king. 
And God, we praise you that you have worked an even greater salvation for us through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would lead our hearts to trust in you fully, Lord, to not trust in anything else. And I pray, Lord, that you would also teach us to pray. Would you hear our prayers now? In the name of Jesus.